Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 29th episode of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. And we're a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. How are you doing today, Kayla? I am great. I am awesome. very busy. Yeah. Uh, we've got a couple of weeks until the start of my last semester of college. Nice. So I'm very stoked about that. And because we're waiting for this to get through this last semester, I am scrambling to get everything done. And I realized about two days ago that I forgot to fill out my FAFSA. No. Well, it's That's fine. so important. I mean, it's in, it's important, but you have, there's, there's not a deadline. Like I have until, I have until a month into my beginning of classes to finish filling out my FAFSA. Oh really? I looked it up. In Minnesota, huh. it's like it's fine. I'm I wasn't on a deadline. I knew that. Like I had plenty of time, but the issue is that I often already have it done by right. now. I yeah. I guess I haven't been in college for like 10 years or whatever. <laughs> it's been a long time since I filled out a FAFSA. I thought I had to have it done before the end of August was like the thing, but also a lot can happen in a decade. Uh, yep. So, yeah. Uh, I had that. I have been rocking out my new position at work. I have nice. been driving around my brand new car. Oh, uh, right. So cute. Mostly, I'm just running around like crazy. Last night was the only night in a long time that I've had where we didn't have to do anything. So, at about 5 o'clock... I mm -hmm. was in my pajamas, and Sean and I were curled up in bed watching a bunch of movies. Ugh, that sounds lovely. And just doing nothing, so. Yes. How have yes. you been? Pretty good. Super busy. Uh, all my jobs are just really busy right now, but uh, I got to go down to the Twin Cities this weekend. Yeah. And hang out with friends. I got to see my sister. We went to a bunch of different breweries. I went to Ikea. Fucking and love it was Ikea. Fantastic. Me too. Dude. Yeah, there I bought a couple of picture frames for some like local art that I had purchased over the pandemic, like trying to support local artists. And then I bought the things and I was like, I don't have any way to like display these. But <laughs> I finally got picture frames, like giant ones. And now I can put them up on my wall. And I'm super pumped about it. Beautiful. Oh, Beautiful indeed. I could spend days in Ikea same they have such good organizational skills and i want to buy all the things but i don't have that much money yeah yeah i know but steve was joking about how when whenever i buy a house because i'm like really starting to look into the concept of it now i just mostly for the podcast honestly mm -hmm. like i just want to be able to have my own podcast room where i can hang things on the wall and have them be permanent and not have to get in trouble with a landlord. And he's like, your whole house is just going to be Ikea stuff, isn't it? I was like, you know, probably. <laughs> a lot of it will be. It it happens to be my style. Like, the modern look is very much so me. Mm -hmm. And everything that they make, they make in black, which is also all of my furniture. So, yeah. Most it of it is black. It. That's true. I now have a bright blue couch that's, like, velvety. Would you buy that from Ikea? 
No. Oh, just curious. They have a lot of very interesting colored furniture. They have a yellow chair I really want to go with my bright blue couch. It's like it will be all like jewel tones. Welcome to our IKEA podcast where we just talk about all the things we want to buy from IKEA. It's amazing. (laughs) I would like to take this moment to address the elephant that is in my room. I don't even know if it's on anybody else's radar, but I'm going to point it out. Okay. The website has not been updated in weeks, and I apologize to all of our listeners who may check out our website. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. So I am aware of it. Yeah, me too. It will be updated. Normally I do it weekly, but at this point I am so far behind that I need to dedicate some time to it, and we've both been so busy running around that we have not done it yet. So I promise it will be updated soon. Either way, the clicking the listener stories link always works just as it always has. Yes. Send us those listener stories, please, and thank you. Yes. And otherwise, I think we've got some pretty cool things still in the works. So stay tuned. Our listener base is pretty steady, but... I'm pretty excited to share some more stuff with some more people. So we would love it if y'all enjoy this to share it with your friends and family, especially if there's a particularly good episode that you're like, man, this one will get them hooked. You just yeah. throw that out there. Yeah, yeah. do it. <laughs> well, we did just show up in that Perfect Duluth Day article about local podcasts. So that's cool. Oh, yeah. That Perfect Duluth Day article that you didn't tell me was happening. And then Sean just texted me a picture of the Perfect Duluth Day article and was like, hey, that you. And I was like, yeah, that is me. What is happening? I know. Front page. Uh, Yeah. Sorry about that. Paul Lundgren (laughs) uh, emailed me and was like, hey, do you mind if I steal your cover photo to like edit it slightly so that it can be the cover photo of this article? And I was like, yeah, do it. And then that was it. That was the interaction. I completely forgot that it was happening. Um, But that's cool. If you're also interested in other local podcasts, look up that Perfect Duluth Day article about local Duluth podcasts. A lot of nature ones. I'm never going to be upset about being in Perfect Duluth Day. Mm -mm. No, love those kids. Yeah, those crazy kids. Those crazy kids. Well, you know, I don't know that anybody needs to hear more about our super hectic lives as far as that goes because it's a lot of both of us working. And I think yeah. that they're here for the stories. Yeah. And we're doing something special this week. Hell yes. That's what I was leading you into with this oh. dramatic. Tell us why we're special this week. It's my birthday. It's your birthday. We are recording on Monday. My birthday is actually on Tuesday, which is tomorrow. This is coming out on Spooky Wednesday. So I will be 35 and one day when you hear this. If you tune in right away on Spooky Wednesday, I'm officially going to be in my (laughs) mid-30s. Which is weird. But good. But all right. It's great. Not where I thought I'd be as a 35-year-old working a government-adjacent job while also having a radio show and a podcast and an LLC now. So, I don't know. Just surprises all around. Here I am. You're not where you thought you'd be. I'm not where I thought I'd be. We're better than that. That's true. I'm probably cooler than I thought I would be. Hell yeah. Like, if I go back to 10-year-old Brittany, 
and I could be like, oh, look at all the things I do. She'd be like, nah, I didn't even think you'd make it past high school. <laughs> Would 10-year-old Brittany think that you were cool enough to be sponsored by a brewery? No, she definitely wouldn't have thought that. Also, she probably thought that the only breweries that existed were like Miller Lite or whatever. Yeah, I don't even know why breweries would be on a 10-year-old's radar. Good point. Yeah. Excellent point. <laughs> but we are. We are. And with that, I'm going to say let's get a word from our sponsor. beers this week yeah like new new like yeah. i didn't even know these existed until you told me about them this weekend i know tell me about yours i am drinking the blueberry honey cream ale from earth rider brewery this one has aroma and flavor of blueberries like i lifted it and smelled it and it smelled very blueberry -y. but i was mm -hmm. pleasantly surprised when it's fruity and refreshing and definitely has a slight taste of blueberry and honey. But it's just a nice, refreshing cream ale, which I always appreciate. I loved your reaction when you drank it for the first time in front of me. And you're like, <gasps> yeah, what? it's what? awesome. What are you drinking? I have the Cedar Sour Red. And it's a Flanders Red Barrel, aged sour, and is several years in the making. So last year they released their first batch, an extremely limited release with only about like 1,500 bottles. I bought about 40 of them because it's delicious. And <laughs> this year is making its triumphant return to be released in early September, most likely at the Earthrider Fest on September 11th. Again, this is a very rare beer and the mad scientist brewer, Allison, created it and it took many, many years to perfect. So get it while you can. Follow Earthrider Beer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on these beers and their upcoming release dates. And we're back. So, because this is another birthday episode, we use this as another excuse to go outside of the United States. Yeah. Where are you taking me? I am taking you to Mexico. Mexico. Yes. And I'm going to start this with our standard disclaimer. I am a Minnesotan who took two years of French, just enough to get into college. My, pronunci my pronunciation might be terrible. <laughs> you can't even say it. <laughs> I can't even That's pronounce English. pronunciation. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. <laughs> People make fun of my accent all the time, and it really doesn't, it doesn't help. It's not going to help with Spanish, that's for sure. So No, no. <laughs> my mouth doesn't do that. <laughs> so I am going to tell you about La Isla de las Mionecas, which is... The island of something. The island of the dolls. The Island of the Dolls. Zach went there. I know. Stop spoiling <laughs> Sorry. it. <laughs> so the Island of the Dolls can be found in 
Xochimilco, which is about 28 kilometers south of Mexico City. If you want to go there, you need to know that it is not particularly easy to get to. Uh, the trip can take about three or four hours or potentially up to six hours, depending on the speed of the person you hire to push you in a big wooden boat. Oh. Like no motorized boats in the canal. They're they're pushing you with a giant oar in a big flat wooden boat. Like gondola style almost. But it's not or... a gondola. Like it's a big flat boat. So it's even more effort for these people to do this. I don't know how anybody could spend all day with the physical labor it takes to push four to eight other people around in these giant boats all day. No. Strong arms, though. So it can take three hours. It could take six hours. It really just depends. And the website for the island specifically notes that many major boats that offer canal tours do not have Isla de la Muendecas on their itinerary, and you will have to ask specifically for a company that will bring you there. Okay. So just getting that out of the way right now, because I can, after I tell you about this, I can picture you in your head trying to plan a trip there. So we need to keep that in mind. We'll have to specifically seek out boat companies that will bring us. Not any old one will do. Exactly. Okay. The history of the island is intimately entwined with the story of Don Julian Santa Barrera, a native of Xochimilco, Don Julian left his wife and family sometime in the mid-20th century to sequester himself on an island on the Texihuico Lake. No one is clear on his reasons for abandoning his family, but eventually some thought that Santa Barbara may have been struggling with some unaddressed mental health concerns. He was not super social, but there was one thing that he loved to talk about. It was documented by several residents of nearby bigger cities that when he came to pick up supplies and sell the things that he's found out and about, he loved to talk about Jesus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was very religious and had a habit of traveling around preaching to anybody else that would listen. But during this time, which was the 1950s, it was presumed that only anointed priests were allowed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a result, Julian's lecturing was not looked upon with favor by the local Catholic community. So he was beaten up a lot. He was just stepping. How very Christian of them. Yeah. You want to talk about God? Uh-uh. <laughs> only we talk about God. I don't think it was the priests beating him up. I think it was the people in the community, but still, not good. Still, come on, man. This whole situation led him to become even more reclusive over the years. Legit. Not long after relocating to the island where he lived completely alone, he made a chilling discovery on the shores. He found the body of a young girl drowned in the lake, and a doll that he thought to be hers came floating down the canals shortly afterwards. That's so sad. Julian buried the girl on the island and took the doll and hung it from a tree so that her spirit could continue to play with it. Okay. Julian claimed that while continuing to live by himself on the island after the girl's death, he began hearing voices and whispers around him, as well as other strange phenomena, such as finding the doll hanging off of a different tree than he had originally hung it. He decided that now the island was being haunted by the spirit of the girl and potentially other spirits that were malevolent. So in a further attempt to appease it, 
he began to visit the communities around the south of Mexico City and find more dolls for them to play with. Okay. So he was out there conducting trade, preaching more gospel, and he just started looking through the trash, whatever trash bins he could find, and taking any dolls that he found in the garbage and bringing them back to the island with him. You know, if he wasn't super popular beforehand, I'm guessing that the trash dolls really didn't improve his popularity with the locals. Probably not. No. According to an article I found on Medium.com, another rumor said that he also began to find numerous dolls floating down the canal, which flowed into the lake that his island was surrounded by. Mm Mm-hmm. Allegedly, the haunting of his home became even more noticeable after he began picking up these dolls and hanging them around his island. He began to hear footsteps near him and something whisper, I want my doll, during the night. However, when he would get up to look around, he wouldn't find anybody. So, he began collecting the dolls from the river, the trash everywhere that he could find them and began hanging them up on trees around the island. The most likely truth, according to the historians, is that there were a few dolls maybe that he found in the river that just got lost while people were traveling with their families, but the majority of them were probably found in the trash. And the voices and whispers of ghosts are more likely either rumors or existed purely in Julian's imagination. Mm. Either way, for the next 50 years, Santa Barrera would scrounge dolls from everywhere that he could and hang them from the island's many trees and use other wood and things that he salvaged from around the area to build other places to hang them. Some he'd hang whole, others he'd hang in various states of disrepair, headless, torsoless, taken apart in other ways. Some people actually joke that maybe the girl's spirit and other spirits on the island continued to haunt him because the offerings he brought them were so ugly. <laughs> I don't like your stupid trash dolls. <laughs> now, Julian never fixed the dolls he hung from the trees. As a result, okay. because they're missing limbs and eyes, people think, yeah, the ghosts are just like, no, this is not, bring me a pretty doll. What is this? Right. I don't want to play with that. Having been originally collected from the trash and now hanging there for over 70 years, their clothes are also decaying and rotting, and insects sometimes crawl in and out of their eye sockets, if you look at pictures. Beautiful. What a not creepy at all visual. There were some special dolls, the ones that Julian found in decent condition. These ones got a special little home created by Julian in a small shed. Although when you open up the door to the shed... They are still in it, and it looks kind of like something out of a horror movie. Julian would also collect accessories for these dolls and fix them up in it. Supposedly, his favorite dolls were named Agustina and Monique. There are many doubts surrounding this legend, and the biggest question is the question of the reality of the little girl who died. Many people, including Don Julian's own family, don't believe he ever actually found the girl. They are unsure whether he made it up, imagined the experience, or was somehow mistaken about what he found, but they really don't think he found a dead body. 
According okay. to those close to them, it was as if Julian was driven by some unseen force that completely changed him. Whether the child existed or not, Don Julian, from that moment on, devoted the rest of his life to her. And perhaps the strangest fall, even in his death, he has clear ties to the story of that drowned child. In 2001, Don Julian Santa Barrera passed away. His body was discovered, you guessed it, drowned in the canal in the exact same place he had always said he'd seen the little girl. Interesting. So Santa Barrera had already kind of started bringing people to the island with him. Okay. Because when locals realized what he was doing, hanging up the dolls, they thought it looked kind of creepy but also kind of intriguing. So he realized he could make a little money if he agreed to bring people back with him and then bring them back to the mainland like a tour. Right. But it didn't become super popular. A few people had been out there, but nothing crazy. Mm -hmm. After his death, where he was found in the same place that he had told all of these people that he brought to the island that he had found a dead child, it kind of just blew up. Tourists began flocking to the island to pay tribute. They brought dolls of their own, and to this day, people still bring dolls to honor the little girl and Santa Barrera, whether she was real or not, by hanging them up in tribute. His son now owns the island and keeps it open for tourists and locals to visit. There's also apparently a small bar on the island now. Well, I mean, now we have to go. Hang a doll, have a beer? Yeah, hang a doll, have a beer. I bet that's their slogan. The show that shall not be named visited the island uh, in 2014. I actually remember this episode a little mm -hmm. bit, and then I rewatched clips of it because I couldn't find the whole thing. And I remember it being really funny because, if I recall correctly, Baggins has doll fear. I mean, look, that's not unreasonable. I'm not saying of it's all unreasonable. the haunted objects, dolls are the most. Ugh. Mr. Drama himself claimed physical harm while on the island. Before the investigation, they find Zack had three bruises on his left arm. And coincidentally, he had been holding Harold the Haunted Doll earlier. Harold apparently has a very loose and almost broken left arm, so they attributed his bruises to Harold's loose arm. During the lockdown investigation part, when the cast arrives to the dock, they hear noises in an area where a fire pit is located. Soon afterward, allegedly, a fire is sparked in the same area, and there was no other people on the island to have started that fire. Ooh. And the show called the shed that Barrera kept the nicer dolls in the Possessed Doll Shed, though nowhere oh. else I found called it that, so, no, you know. They like to make that stuff up on that show. Yeah. Apparently, at one point, an energy force goes off in the shed, and Aaron sees a figure walking outside on the bridge, and then he continuously sees that same figure on the bridge throughout the episode. And the rest of the episode is filled with your standard cold spots, whispers, and Zack feeling icy hands on his body. Of course. As far as the rest of the island goes, there's not a lot of haunted stories to tell. All of the big articles I found are telling you the background. Some tourists have found that they hear whispers and have seen dolls moving. But every one of those were from an article that says tourists claim to have heard whispers right. and seen dolls movie. I found no specific stories. 
Either way, for a place that is regularly on the list of some of the most haunted places in the world, the main party line seems to be that people are just creeped out to be in an area surrounded by a bunch of creepy dolls. And you know what? I can't blame them. Because look at these things. I have some pictures to show you. I'm ready. Oh. I mean, they probably wouldn't be so creepy if they weren't, you know, 70 years old hanging up in a tree. You can see how being in this place would 100% freak you out. Was that a mannequin? Oh, yeah, there's mannequins, too. So that is some glorious pictures, which I will also share on our social media. So it could be the place has a very sad history and a lot of creepy looking dolls. Or it could be that my Google knows I don't speak Spanish and is only showing me English language articles. Therefore, I am missing a bunch of stories that is entirely possible. Right. But if my research is correct, you're actually much more likely to encounter a spirit traveling to a much less discussed location in Mexico City, the abandoned shell of La Posada del Sol. Sitting near the center of Mexico City, La Posada del Sol is a derelict hotel that is crumbling and covered in graffiti. Underneath the destruction, you can see the evidence of what it once was, a dream project of Fernando Salnada Galvin, he poured his blood, sweat, and tears into this hotel in the mid-20th century in a failed attempt to create a unique artistic center that would stand out as one of the most extravagant hotels in the world. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't sound like it. Combining mm -hmm. Baroque colonial architecture and modernist decadence, Posada del Sol occupies more than half a block, encompassing gardens, patios, fountains, terraces, Massive paintings, elevated viewpoints, more than 500 rooms were built, and he adorned the property with a casino, a theater, a gorgeous chapel, ballrooms, galleries, tea rooms, Turkish baths, and a human-sized chessboard. Unfortunately, external factors got the better of him. Construction on Posada del Sol was completely suspended in the beginning of 1945. It had only been open for eight months. No. That's a huge investment to suddenly have thrown out the window. And that's exactly it. As Galvan's depth rose, he hung himself in the hotel yard. Legend has it that he cursed the building before taking his life, which is why it still stands empty to this day. This legend is emphasized by the fact that he carved his suicide note into a stone located on the premises. That's dedication. A part of which reads, I recommend that the vain and the angry without merit be appraised, who tried to humiliate me, overloaded me with difficulties, or climbed over me to increase their own ostentation and patrimony, while I have worked with no truce and no hope. FSG, February 22nd, 1945. All them bitches crawling over me when I worked so hard. I curse you. He didn't just write a suicide note. He carved it into stone. One explanation cited for the hotel's demise is that apparently Galvin went insane and murdered his family just before the opening of the cultural center and then also killed himself. Others believe that Galvin got into deep water with the Freemasons. 
Oh. Or that possibly the project was a facade to perform satanic rites. Now, these are some really interesting theories. Indeed, one of the most eerie features of this abandoned, gorgeous building is a dark room believed to be the altar of a missing girl who was found dead in the hotel's basement and whose ghost is believed to haunt the place along with the ghost of the owner. This next story I found from a website that was in Spanish and I took it to Google Translate to figure it out. So forgive me if some stuff is lost in translation because I can guarantee nothing here, but this is what I got from it. Okay, I'm excited. One of the theories is that this girl was the daughter of one of the hotel workers of that place. She was lost after she got out of the nursery provided for employees and no one knew where she went. They never found her body. They believe she died somewhere in the hotel. The parents and other employees were so sad that they built an altar for her, which is still there today. You can see a woman's dress surrounded by toys, sweets, flowers, and faded photographs. Supposedly, when people sneak into this building, they leave additional offerings for her. And I'm going to share the screen again and show you the picture of the altar. So there's the dress. Is it weird that the creepiest thing about that whole photo is that big smiley face in the center? I know somebody left it there. and I was like, oh, that's newer. But you can look. If you zoom in, you can see some really old, old. snacks yeah. in there. The spirit of this girl, they say, goes through rooms asking for people to not forget her, knocking on doors, opening and closing windows, waiting for someone to follow and play with her or calm her trembling fear of being lost in this cold and dark place. Oh, that's so sad. The other altars that have been built, it's not sure how long they've been there, if it was while the hotel was still being used or mm -hmm. things that people have built for this girl later on when they've snuck in. Neighbors of the building or people walking by claim that in the night they can hear shouts and cries for help from children that once started will not stop until sunrise. That is so disturbing. I don't like that at all. There are also supposedly tunnels hidden between the concreted double walls of the building. Some claim that within these tunnels are hidden the skulls and bones of at least 40 people. There are conspiracy Why? theories that they are either due to the fact that the hotel was built for satanic rituals as a like cover for satanic rituals. Have you also heard a lot of the conspiracies about Freemasons? Yeah. So they're also saying that this was a front for Freemasons and that because they were used to build the hotel, these tunnels are where they would dump the bodies of the people that they tortured and killed. Finally, there is another theory that this building, though long abandoned at that point, was used to torture and help disappear, quote, disappear, hundreds of young people at the time of the Mexican student movement of 1968, and that this whole thing was put on by the chief of police at the time who was terrible and killed many people during this student uprising movement. It is illegal to visit the inside of the hotel, so it's recommended that you, when you stop by, you see it from the outside, because unlike some of the abandoned buildings we've talked about where it's not recommended but you can easily get in, this right. place is like hella guarded. It's on a busy street. They've got a wired net and metal fences and they have people that patrol around it regularly. So do not expect an easy entrance. And as always, remember that 
we here at Left of Skeptic don't recommend trying to break in anywhere. And, you know, if that's not enough for you, you could be haunted in Mexico City by just going to their airport. There have been a couple of stories now of ghosts on planes at the Mexico City airport. I found one from 2012, one from 2015, and this one from 2018, though apparently the experience happened in 2016 and the guy just didn't talk about it for a couple of years. Okay. The article starts, forget about snakes on a plane, because this is definitely more terrifying than that. And that just makes me giggle because I love snakes on a plane. In November of 2016, Francisco Hernandez told the media that he experienced a small something he believes it was a child when he was running through his rounds checking the empty planes during the night and he has a video to prove it what it happened at the end of his shift at about 3 a.m when he went on board the empty plane for a security checkup he had heard doors banging on the aircraft so it was his duty to investigate and he didn't think he'd come across anything the video shows right. him walking up and down the cabin, shining his light on all the aisles. He's basically trying to just check everything out, make sure everything's empty. And here's his quote. He says, at first, I wasn't sure what I was seeing. I whispered to myself, what is this? And even took a few steps forward because I thought it could be a trick of the light. But when it moved back and forth on its own, I knew I wasn't making it up. What I saw that night totally freaked me out and I ran for my life. I've been reluctant to come forward with his story because not many people believe me, but fortunately I recorded the incident so I could play it back and check that I wasn't imagining it. If I hadn't, I would have doubted what I saw that night myself. Are you ready for a video? I was going to say, you better have a video for me. <laughs> so the beginning, it's about a minute and 53 seconds long. We will also post it on our social media. The first little bit is boring, but then it goes back and it'll reshow you. So you're not going to miss anything. There's something about things like looking around corners that I really don't like. Especially dark, shadowy things. Yeah. Pass. Hard pass. So that was my story about what was just going to be the Island of the Dolls and then realized that there's right. a few things in Mexico City that I could capture in one section here. And it felt like for your birthday, I really needed to give you Aww. a few good ones. Aww. I love that. Also, when I was little, because my family has this habit, especially my Auntie Chris, where we would seek out, like, really old abandoned cemeteries. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were driving around northern Minnesota somewhere, and there was supposed to be a cemetery at the end of a road, and the road was only big enough for a single car to go down. And it's all overgrown on the side, and it's just this little dirt path that we're driving down. And it kept getting creepier and creepier, and I was like, we really need to lock the doors now. I was like, I don't know, seven or eight or something. And as we started getting closer to where the cemetery was supposed to be, there were dolls hanging from the trees. And I was like, mm-mm, we got to turn around. And my auntie Chris is like, we can't turn around. There's no place to turn around. We're on, like, this. we're in a path. And I was like, you have to back up. And she's like, okay. We ended up, like, backing up, I don't know, half a mile or something because there was no place to turn around and there were just dolls hanging from the trees outside of this old abandoned cemetery somewhere in northern Minnesota. <laughs> so dolls hanging from a tree is super scary when you see it in real life and especially if you're not expecting it. So on a scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what do you give the island of the dolls? 
A one. Me too. Yeah. What do you give La Posada del Sol? A three. I was going to go a 2.5. So right around the same place. And what do you yeah. give the haunted airplanes at the airport in Mexico City? Ugh, a four. I give that a four too. Me and you. What? Right here. Look at us. Look at us. Right here. Right here. I can't see you, but I'm right here. Which is funny because you can't see me, but I'm doing the same thing right now. It's so weird. Man, our recording is fraught with issues this evening. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Well, I guess right. in a, in an effort to <laughs> even things out a bit this evening, let's cut to another commercial break and hear from our sponsors. <laughs> That Cedar Sour Red, you mentioned that its release date might be Earthrider Fest? Yeah, it's just one more reason to get your ticket for this amazing show at the Earthrider Festival Grounds. Saturday, September 11th, the festivities are going on all day and all night long from noon until midnight. They've got music. Yeah. They've got kraut eating competitions. Yeah. They've got barrel throwing. Heck yeah. They've got music. Heck yeah. They've got beer releases. Mm -hmm. They've got yard games. Boom. They've got more music. All of the music. Yes. <laughs> so tickets are on sale now, and you'll want to get them as soon as you can because they're only selling 350 advanced tickets online, and this is an event that is sure to hit capacity. For more details on Earthrider Fest, visit earthrider.beer and click on the banner right at the top of the page. And we're back. And we got Hi. the issues fixed so you can see my face now. Got the issues. I can see your face. I'm not just speaking to an empty chair. So ghostly. What? <laughs> this is going to be an interesting one to edit. I'm very glad at this yeah. point that we don't do YouTube videos yet. Right? Yeah. Like we said at the beginning of the episode, if you didn't gather from Kayla's story with going to Mexico, uh, I am also doing a story from out of the United States. And we are traveling over to Ireland for mine. Yes. I think Zach also went here, but I didn't watch it. Okay. Yeah. So tonight I'm going to tell you about Lep Castle. Nice. Lep Castle is a castle in Coolderry County, Offaly. Ireland. And we're starting off strong with not being able to pronounce things. Uh, don't worry, though. It gets worse. <laughs> All right. So there's a little bit of a dispute as to when the castle was built. The dates generally range from the 13th century to the 15th century. And it was built by the O'Bannon clan and was originally called something in Gaelic that I'm not even going to try and pronounce, but it translates to the Lep of the O'Bannons or the Leap of the O'Bannons. So the castle's name is pronounced like Lep, but it's spelled like the word Leap. Okay. And it could be either way or just a pronunciation thing because according to legend, when the O'Bannon family came across the ancient rocky outcrop, they decided that it would be the perfect place to build a castle. And from there, it would give them strategic positioning to guard the pass through the Sleeve Bloom Mountain Range. 
unfortunately, there was a bit of family drama over who would be the official leader of the O'Bannon clan, and it actually came down to two brothers, but there can, like, be only one. So, (laughs) (laughs) apparently, the only way to solve this little quandary was to call for a display of strength, bravery, and sheer determination. So they decided that both brothers would jump from the rock and whoever survived would have the honor of calling himself chieftain. A leap of faith, if you will. (gasps) Yes, Kayla, funny. God, I'm witty. I don't have any information on the brothers' names or who won this ridiculous display of manhood, but I guess it doesn't (laughs) matter because the castle was built and the survivor became the leader of the clan. However, the O'Bannons were not the only clan in the area. They were actually the secondary chieftains to the warrior clan, the O'Carrolls, princes of Ely, and were subject to the O'Carrolls rule. Okay. So the O'Bannons built the castles, but the O'Carrolls actually controlled it. And the O'Carrolls were dicks. They were brutal. They apparently loved killing people, even each other during their fight to total domination. Ugh, what a bag of straight-up phalluses. For real, though. For real. And in part, because of the O'Carrolls, this land has a super bloody history. Because they just love to kill everybody. But it actually didn't start with the O'Carrolls. Before the castle was even built, uh, before the O'Bannons jumped off the cliff to see who would survive, there is evidence that the land was used for centuries by ancient druids for bloody initiation ceremonies, and that it had been occupied consistently since at least the Iron Age, which is about 500 BCE, and possibly since the Neolithic times. What's Neolithic time? The Neolithic period is the final division of the Stone Age. Oh, okay. So it's around... 1900 BC. Got it. It's old, it's bloody, and it continues to be super bloody. So John O'Carroll is thought to be the first of the O'Carroll clan to live in Lep Castle, and he's most likely built some of the earliest sections of it. And then John died of the plague, and he was succeeded by his son Mulroney. Then in 1513, the Earl of Kildare, Gerald Fitzgerald, attacked the castle unsuccessfully, and then returned three years later and partially demolished it. Gerald Fitzgerald. Gerald Fitzgerald. Okay, so Mulroney is still in charge, and he's actually known to be a pretty great leader. According to the castle's website, he's renowned for his strength, bravery, and valor until he died, most likely at the castle, in 1532. And then, girl, things go bananas. (laughs) So there is a bunch of infighting in the family, and everyone thinks that they should be the new clan leader. In fact, one of the sons murdered another one of the sons who was a priest. According to legend, the son who was the priest was chanting the holy rites when his brother came into the chapel and stabbed him in the back in front of the whole family. He died on the altar, and ever since, the site of his murder has been referred to as the Bloody Chapel. Jesus. So eventually... Mulroney O'Carroll was succeeded by his son. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just realized that you talked about stabbing a priest and my response was, Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) Continue. So eventually, Mulroney O'Carroll was succeeded by his son, Fergan Heinem. 
Fjörgenheinem. Fjörgenheinem. As the leader of their clan. Um, this is the, that's the name that I told you that I Googled and Google was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So you can't tell me how to say that. All right. I'll just say it with a little bit of an accent and hopefully shit'll buff out. So Fjörgenheinem. Uh, and you did not want to go to Fjörgenheinem's Lep Castle because let me tell you, Rumor has it, he liked to do things like murder his guests at the dinner table, as well as murder his own servants, until he himself was murdered in 1541 by the O'Malloys. This is some straight-up so Game of Thrones shit. For real, though, you just wait. We're just getting into it. But before good old Fergenheinem was murdered, he had four sons of his own. He had Teague the One-Eyed. William the Pale, and then two others whose names I cannot pronounce. I tried, but it worked out really well because they actually don't have anything to do with the rest of the story. We just need to know Teague and William. So Teague ended up taking over as leader of the clan until one of his own kingsmen named Care murdered him. But not before Teague had a son of his own, also named Mulroney. They really like to recycle names in this family. And then Teague's younger brother, William the Pale, was like, You killed my brother! And then he slayed Care. Family on family violence. What can you do? William was also killed by another relative, but not before he also had some sons. And we got Teague number two, Milroni the third, John and Charles. So John became the leader, uh, but only until Mulroney II, which was his cousin, not his brother, killed him. And then John's brother Charles killed Mulroney II, the cousin, and became Prince of Ely. I'm going to need a chart. Yeah. Okay, so then in 1629, another John O'Carroll, and I'm not 100% sure where this John came from, and what number John that he was in the list of all the John O'Carrolls that existed. Uh, I just know that he is the nephew of Charles O'Carroll, and he was given official ownership of Lep Estate. Then about 20 or something years later, the property of Lep Castle was handed over to Jonathan Darby. Then in 1664, it was given back to John O'Carroll. And then three years later, it was handed back to the Darbys. And then five Jonathan Darby's, a Henry Darby, a John Darby, a William Darby, and then another Jonathan Darby later. It's now 1889, and the last Jonathan Darby was living at Lep Castle when he married his wife, Mildred Dill. And now the story gets a little less confusing. Okay. Um, that was mostly just to explain to you how everyone was murdering each other in this castle, like to the extreme. Family members strangers, other people. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the last of the Jonathan Darby's married Mildred Dill in 1889 and Mildred, bomb lady. So she was super into the occult and spiritualism, which it's the 1880s. It was super popular at the time. And she was also a gothic novelist who because women weren't allowed to be novelists or anything fun, wrote under the pen name of Andrew Mary. Andrew Mary. 
And while some people believed that it was her stories of the paranormal that led to Lep Castle having the reputation of being haunted, others believe that it's actually the fact that she used to hold seances at the castle that actually caused it to be haunted. And one spirit in particular, referred to as the elemental, is said to be the result of her dabbling in the occult. Okay. Also during this time, Jonathan and Mildred started renovations on the castle and they found just off the bloody chapel an oubliette, which is a secret dungeon with access only through the trap door in its ceiling. And this one also happened to have spikes at the bottom. So although most people would have hit the spikes and been impaled, if they didn't, it's cool because they're still trapped in the dungeon and they would just starve to death. You just need a hoggle to get you out. A hoggle? It's, it's another labyrinth reference. Don't worry about it. Okay. I don't like the labyrinth because I don't like Muppets. All right. We're going to ignore the fact that you said that because um, I need us to stay friends to continue this podcast. So go ahead. Okay. It actually took the workers three cartloads to carry out all of the human bones that were found at the bottom of the oubliette. And one theory for the large number of victims actually goes back to the 1500s. So Charles O'Carroll, one of the previous O'Carrolls, he did this thing where he had 150 men and he decided that he didn't know if he could trust them. So when it came time to pay them for the duties that they had performed, instead he just murdered all of them. Solid. Because the O'Carrolls, not great. Um, But interestingly enough of the victims like amongst the bones in the oubliette there was a pocket watch that just dated back to the 1840s so apparently although most of the bones were like a couple hundred years old there was also some from the mid 1800s and they were like well where did that come from people were still getting thrown onto the spikes okay (laughs) all right All right, so the Darbys remained at Lep Castle until a fire broke out in 1922, after which they moved to England. And then the house remained empty for a really long time. It was looted and abandoned until about 1974 when it was purchased by an Australian man named Peter Barlett, who started renovating the castle. But it is now owned by the Ryan family, who continues with the renovations. And that basically brings you up to, like, nowadays. A lot of bloodiness. The O'Carrolls, not a fun group of humans. Don't hang out with them. Got it. Cool. So it is not surprising that with a history as bonkers as Lep Castle's, that it ended up being super haunted. And one of the biggest triggers to the hauntings seems to be the renovations. So both the Ryans, who currently own the castle, and Peter Bartlett before him, said that the paranormal activity happened around the renovations a lot. Tools would be moved around and to the far corners of the rooms. Carpenters would suddenly leave with no explanations. And strange accidents were reported to have happened. You know, the usual. Your standard renovating a haunted house style stuff. Exactly. Except for this one is several hundred years old. So even more fun. Even when Jonathan and Mildred Darby began renovations during the early 1900s, they reported unusual activity. And this is where good old Millie comes in handy, because she's a writer. So we have a bunch of her accounts about the hauntings. Mm -hmm. So Mildred once wrote, 
Noises like furniture being moved were frequently heard at night, and strangers staying with us have often asked us why the servants turn out the rooms underneath them at such an unusual hour. The front doorbell sometimes rang, and I'd have gone down, but found no one. Nice. The Bloody Chapel is said to be home to many of the spirits of Lep Castle. There have been many reports of bright lights streaming from the upper windows of the chapel, tales going back through the Darby family when they resided there. But even now, neighbors still call the Ryans to let them know about the lights in the chapel windows. And people also, weirdly enough, report the strange smell of rubber here as well. And I have no idea what that could be. And... Unsurprisingly, the murdered priest who was stabbed by his own brother has been seen on many occasions in the bloody chapel. He is said to be lurking on the stairway below as well as leaving the chapel through the western door down to the northern stairs. Also unsurprisingly, the oubliette is the site of a lot of paranormal activity as well. It is thought that the original use for the chamber was actually to store valuables and also to be used as a place to hide in the event of a siege. Um, the O'Carrolls, however, modified the chamber to serve as a small dungeon where prisoners were thrown in, dead or dying, as they do that wacky O'Carroll clan. So the entrance to the chamber is a narrow hole, uh, originally fitted with the form of like a trap door. Um, the name oubliette in french means to forget which is exactly what they did once their prisoners were down there in the dungeons they just threw them down there and then we're like eh. peace my number one thought though is how did that smell oh probably terrible right Ugh. especially if people are dying down there because when you die you release your bowels yeah it's got to be gross it's got to be gross so as I said before, the O'Carrolls were a brutal clan who would stop at nothing to achieve total domination of the area. And according to legend, there were actually several occasions where the O'Carrolls would employ other clans as mercenaries to kill off nearby threats. Then, when they completed the job, they were invited back to Lep Castle for a celebratory feast. However, unfortunately for the mercenaries, the feast was poisoned. And then the O'Carrolls would cut their throats, and then the corpses were thrown into the oubliette. I just felt like it was a good place for the Game of Thrones theme song. I did not know that that's what that was. I was so confused. I thought you were going to do Star Wars, and I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And then it wasn't, and I was like, I'm lost. Anyway, 39 of the O'Neill clan were disposed of this way. And then in 1599, Mr. Charles O'Carroll, that fun man who murdered his men, um, the last of the chieftains at Lep was at war with the Earl of Tyrone. And he hired the McMahon clan from Montague as mercenaries. So after they fought for him, the O'Carrolls held yet another feast, after which they were then murdered in their sleep. And the McMahon clan are said to haunt the Great Hall to this day. This just makes me so happy. Why? Because <laughs> it's fucking Game of Thrones. That's all I'm it's picturing in my head. I'm sorry. Continue. This is what I was going to do for your birthday. And I was like, no, no. I need her to be here to react <laughs> to this because it's bananas. 
During the occupation of Left Castle by the Darbys, the oubliette was cleaned and its contents were removed during some of the renovations. And it's believed that during the gruesome discovery of the oubliette, an emotional shockwave was sent through the castle and many of the spirits, including the elemental, were awoken from their dormancy. So the owner, Sean Ryan, speaks of a man who seems to live in the oubliette also um, and he then he leaves the bloody chapel on occasion to wander down the lower levels of the castle so because of this oubliette there seems to be an entire clan of humans who were murdered in their sleep that hang out in the great hall and then some random old man who seems to live in the oubliette and then like come out to wander the castle so then in the priest's house which at this point is really nothing more than a shell due to that fire from the 1920s there is said to be your favorite a shadowy figure that can be seen from the windows but even before the fire mildred wrote about such a being quote there is something heavy that lies on people's beds and snores and they feel the weight of a great body pressing against them in the room in the priest's house A burly man in rough clothes like a peasant, he's always pushing a heavy barrel up the back stairs of the wing, near the servants' bedrooms, and then just at the top, the barrel rolls down and all disappear. A monk with a tonsure and cowl walk in at one window and out another in the priest's house. So apparently there is a burly peasant-like man who pushes a heavy barrel up the back stairs of this, like, stone house and then just like drops it down the stairs and then everyone just disappears. And then there is the murder hole room. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently no one knows where it is anymore, but Mildred also wrote about that. And she said, I put my hand out of bed, snapping my fingers to call her Nell, a terrier. My hand was suddenly in the grasp of another hand, a soft, cold hand at a temperature perceivably below my own flesh. To say I was astonished would but mildly convey my feelings. After a few seconds of steady pressure, the other hand let go, and almost simultaneously I heard a heavy sliding fall, like the collapse of a large body at the foot of the bed. Then, in an absolute stillness of the room, there was a sound of a deep human groan and some half-articulated words, or, to be accurate, prayers. People have complained before. In fact, we generally don't put anyone there now. The room is called the Muckle, or Murder Hole Room, and the story goes that the stain on the floor is the blood of a man stabbed there by his brother. Two O'Carrolls quarreled over the ownership of the castle. The room had been disused for 50 years or more when we did it up. The stain has been paneled off the boards several times, but it always comes up again, creeping up from below in a few hours. I was going to call my podcasting room the Oubliette, but now I think I need to call it the Muckle. The Muckle? What about the Murder Hole? No, because it's the Muckle or Murder Hole. So by the calling it the muckle i'm calling it the murder hole oh okay okay yeah so essentially there's this room that even before 
the Darby's moved in. It had been disused for about 50 years and two O'Carrolls had quarreled over the ownership of the castle, which we know definitely happened. One of them had stabbed the other, which apparently they did all of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, a bunch of crazy things happened in that room. So then they just kind of like boarded it up. But now to this day, no one knows where this room is. It's just missing. Like the murder hole just isn't there anymore. So that's cool. Oofta. Just a disappearing room. Just a disappearing room. How very Harry Potter. It's only there when you need to murder someone and then it goes away. People also report seeing the Red Lady. And she is a very tall woman that always seems to be wearing a long red dress who carries a dagger in her hand. And reports tell of her raising the dagger in a threatening manner to frighten guests and a strange glow radiates from within her. Like a lantern. So the story of the Red Lady is that she was captured by a member of the O'Carroll family and she was sexually assaulted mm. and a baby was born as a result of that assault and then was killed by the O'Carrolls who claimed that they couldn't afford to feed the child so the woman terribly distressed legit uh, then killed herself with the very same blade that the O'Carrolls used to kill her baby Hoofda. and now she walks around the castle with this blade being stabby Two young girls have also been seen at the castle, and they are mainly seen playing in the main hall and running up and down the stairwell, and it is believed that they lived in the castle during the 1600s. One of the girls, Emily, died at age 11 after falling off the castle's southeastern battlements, and people to this day see a young girl who falls off the roof of the castle, but then she disappears before she hits the ground. Okay. The other girl, Charlotte, has been seen with a deformed leg that she drags around behind her. And actually, Mildred wrote about them as well. She said, Another night I was sleeping with my little girl. I woke and saw a girl with long, fair hair standing at the fireplace, one hand at her side and the other on the chimney piece. Thinking at first that it was my little girl, I felt the pillow to see if she were gone, but she was fast asleep. So Mildred also described another ghostly woman that was believed to, again, have been murdered by the O'Carroll clan. And Mildred Darby describes her in an article submitted to the Occult Review. She wrote so many articles for the Occult Review. Like, she just loved talking about ghosts and the occult. There is a woman with very few clothes and a red cloth over her face. She screams loudly twice and then disappears. But the current owner, Sean Ryan, also claims that he can hear this woman screaming. So, whatever she's upset about, she's still upset to this day. Then, there is a governess or a nanny that is frequently seen in the main hall and often seen with the two little girls, Emily and Charlotte. And she tends to show herself more to visitors, more than the owners. And visitors have spoken of someone brushing past them. And a friend of the current owner had said that he saw what he described as a proud woman in Victorian clothing diagonally across the main hall from where he was sitting. And there is also apparently an old man that has been seen on a number of occasions sitting peacefully by the fire in the main hall. And then there is the elemental. The elemental is one of the most interesting and terrifying spirits that resides at Lep Castle. 
and no one really knows what it is, but its origins seem to date back to the beginning of the castle's history. One theory is that it was created or called upon by ancient druids thousands of years ago to protect their sacred ceremony site. Another is that it was placed there by Gerald Fitzgerald to destroy the castle from within. So he was the one who attempted to seize the castle, failed, and then came back three years later. Apparently he was known to dabble in the dark arts and he like really wanted that castle. So if he couldn't have it, he was going to create something with his dark arts magic that would like destroy the castle from within. This all lines up with my D&D nut logic of elementals. Elementals are like something that you bring forward and manifest through some sort of a ritual to protect you or something you want or attain something you want. So this fits with what I know from D&D. Oh, nice. Well, let's see if it continues to. Local myths say that the elemental is the spirit of an ancient O'Carroll clan member who died as a leper in the castle. And it is believed that this is why the creature seems to be seen with a decomposing face and a terrible smell. Then there's also Mildred Darby, who has also been accused of attracting the spirits while dabbling in the occult. She had had many seances and believed in automatic writing, and it was also around this time that the oubliette was discovered and the skeletons of approximately 150 bodies. And it was shortly after this that Mildred Darby herself would have a terrifying encounter with the elemental. Whatever this entity is, though, it only seems to make its presence known when people are trying to provoke it. So Mildred Darby was perhaps provoking the elemental by, like, all of her occult dabbling. Mm -hmm. Um, But she wrote about the elemental. Suddenly, two hands were laid on my shoulders. I turned around sharply and saw, as clearly as I see you now, a gray thing standing a couple feet from me with its bent arms raised as if it was cursing me. I cannot describe in words how utterly awful the thing was, its very undefinableness rendering the horrible shadow more gruesome. Human in shape, a little shorter than I am, I could just make out the shape of big black holes like great eyes and sharp features, but the whole figure, head, face, hands and all, was gray, uncleaned, bluish gray, something of the color and appearance of common cotton wool. But oh, so sinister, repulsive, and devilish. My friends who are clever about occult things say it is what they call an elemental. So the current owners, the Ryans, have lived at Lep Castle since 1991, and they've never felt a sinister presence. Um, However, those who have seen it more recently are those who are looking to study it, like paranormal investigators, again, because it seems like if you provoke it, then it will be seen, Mm -hmm. which apparently it's not. It's not a fan of. Yeah. So, uh... So if Zach Baggins did go, that motherfucker probably probably provoked it. 100%. You know he did. He loves doing that. Um, but yeah. So a lot of that, just, uh, give a little shout out to ukmythology.wordpress.com. So much of that information was from them. Thank you so much for doing a lot of the research. And that is my story of Lep Castle. I loved it. So D&D. So Game of Thrones. So the Labyrinth. So many things I love and adore. I'm glad that you waited until I was present to tell me this. On a skeptic scale, I'm going to give that a four. 
It would have been a 4.5. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the current owners haven't encountered anything. They just haven't encountered the the elemental. Oh, okay. They've encountered other stuff. Oh, okay. Then I'm going to give it a 4.5. Boom. Awesome. Remember, they heard that woman screaming twice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to give it? I'm going to give it a 4.5, too. Nice. We on the same page nice. today. Mm-hmm. Right here. Right here. I have a birthday listener story for you. So this story is from somebody who has written to us before, and they sent it okay. shortly after my birthday episode. So it, sem- it right. seemed fitting to share this on your birthday episode. Yeah. Anne-Marie says, Hi, Kayla and Brittany. This is an old story of travel and dark moments. Seems fitting to send this to you after this week's Anywhere in the World episode. Steve, Anne-Marie's husband. Oh, okay. Steve and I were young tourists with backpacks, a UK guidebook, rail passes, and no smartphones. We often had no idea where we were, how to get anywhere, and couldn't easily access the internet for answers. We did a lot of traveling by asking advice from strangers on the train. Mostly their ideas were awesome. That day, we ended up in Stirling, Scotland. Stirling is famous for many reasons, one of which is that is where Braveheart, William Wallace's left arm, was sent after his execution. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it was nailed to a bridge. Shortly after oh, that, okay. Scotland won its independence on a battlefield nearby, the Battle of Bannockburn. It's located somewhat on the historic border of England and Scotland, and like most border towns, was a location for violence, drama, and many executions. The elderly, confused volunteer ladies in the tourist information booth helped us find the last available room in all of Stirling and gave us vague directions that even involved sending us out to the wrong side of the train station. We navigated to the X they placed on a weak tourist map, only to be told by the front desk at the hotel bearing the right name that the volunteers had sent us to that this was the wrong place. We needed a different hotel (laughs) with the same name. The desk guy gave us a better directions, but it involved walking a couple more miles. He did point out, though, that the place we were headed to was right on the hop-on, hop-off bus tour route. So in the morning, we could hop on a bus tour, buy a ticket on board, and get easier navigation around the city. We were exhausted by the time we reached our bed for the night. There were no windows. The room was so tiny, it barely held the full-size bed. It was clean and well-kept, but probably had last been updated in the 1970s. Wallpaper, carpeting, and bedding older than me. It was retrofitted inside a building that looked easily a hundred years older than these furnishings. If the colors had been just a little bit more quirky, Wes Anderson could have used it for a film location. (laughs) We brushed our teeth and collapsed in bed. I woke up fairly soon to the sound of a couple fighting in the next room. It was a loud, bad, bad fight. I laid still in bed trying to decide if I should call the front desk or local police to intervene at all, but it didn't sound like anyone was getting physically hurt. They were both just yelling horrible, angry things at each other. It went on long enough that I fell asleep and woke up several times to their shouting. I thought Steve heard it too, but he just kept rolling over and ignoring it. I laid awake, wondering if they were pausing to breathe at all, and if they were even speaking normal modern English. It was strange, and their accents were heavy, and they were so very angry for so very long into the night. The next morning, I mentioned to Steve about that loud fight in the next room, and he said, What room? I'm pretty sure that's exterior wall, and I did not hear anything. When we left the building, I noticed that he was right. 
What I had thought was the next room was an exterior wall with poorly maintained little urban green space with a broken bench. And the walls of that building were old and thick. It seemed weird that I would have been able to hear a fight outside the building so clearly. We got on the tourist bus and found out from the narrator that the busy road intersection next to the hotel was the site of the city's gallows and executions in the more recent past. Last couple hundred of years. The little green space was part of an area that crowds would gather and watch executions. The last person executed here was an old man in his 70s who'd murdered his also elderly wife. They died almost 100 years ago. A sinking feeling started as I realized that maybe Steve couldn't hear the couple fighting because they might not have been of this era. They might have been some echo or ghost related to this past dark history. We took the bus around and got off at a park that had promised a nice view of the local castle and Wallace Monument. It felt sinking and heavy too. We wandered off a little into the park, just feeling kind of off. Steve was telling me stories about how dangerous city park landscapes like this are in his hometown of Memphis. As we turned around a shrub, there was a three to four foot tall stone with a weird cast iron cage clamped on top. A nearby marker explained that this was the beheading stone from an even earlier area of Sterling's executions. The intent for this victim's head and axe marks were clear and visible. The top of the stone was worn and polished from either tourists' hands or hundreds of years of executions on this stone that it took part in. I've seen other such stones while traveling since then, and a few before, but this one had such a dark and horrible feeling. There was just something not right about it. Steve often comes up with epitaphs for places we visited, and when he can't remember the name of the city itself, he'll ask me, where was that city with all the cannons? Or where was that town with the colorful walls? Sterling, in Steve's description, has always been that creepy place, the one we were happy to leave. Thanks for all the spooky Wednesdays. Anne-Marie. That was a good story. I would really love to think that the old woman that had been murdered was there for eternity yelling at her husband for doing it. Because he a dick. He's dick. Yeah. For real, though. Well, thank you, Anne-Marie, for that lovely story. Yet again, another amazing thank one. You. If you have a story you would like to share with us, you can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. Or you can visit our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab. You can share your name like Anne-Marie did, or you can be anonymous. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter as well as Instagram at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Also, if you have a favorite episode, make sure you share it with a friend. Spread the word. Please and Spread thank the you. Creepy. All right. It's been one heck of a recording studio session. And I would yes. just like to end this episode by saying I wish you the absolute best birthday tomorrow, Brittany. Thank you. Guess where I'm going? Where are you going? Earthrider. <laughs> <laughs> the Crunchy Bunch are playing. <laughs> no requests. Just shut up and dance. Freak of the week. (laughs) All right. All right. Happy birthday. Happy spooky Wednesday. Happy spooky Wednesday. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.
Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Land. This week's episode is edited by Kayla Moria. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc. And our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!